You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. It's Say It Ain't Contagious with Adrian Burgos, Greg Calcaterra, Stephen Goldman, Frank Garitti, Lincoln Mitchell, and Tova Wang. Hi, everyone. Welcome or welcome back to Say It Ain't Contagious, where we talk about baseball in the context of social justice and politics. And I'm Tova Wang. I, during my day job, am a research fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School which is not terribly relevant for this. But in any case, um, the theme of the day is rules. And there have been a whole slew of new rules that were announced by baseball in the past week. And somehow Steve Goldman is going to analogize this to the rules of the Senate. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> I'm going to let him do that. But I, I guess we'll start <laughs> off with the rules in baseball because that seems easier at least for me, even though this is what I do for a living. Anyway. My job is to propose, <laughs> not to explain. Baseball is trying to liberalize or experiment with rules changes to change the pace of play because baseball has become very slow lengthwise in terms of game time, despite some fitful efforts to speed it up, to get pitchers to throw the ball in a decent amount of time to prevent hitters from strolling all around the the infield, stepping out constantly. There are rules on the books for all these things, but they've really never been enforced. And now in an era of incredibly divided attention spans, this is working against the game. What compounds this and makes it much more difficult is that is the, the filibuster. Well, the filibuster too. We will get to the I'm, filibuster. I'm actually, I'm getting, I'm getting on his wavelength now. Go ahead. Okay, so uh, the the filib well, see the filibuster is an <laughs> act of formal prevarication in the Senate, which, despite Mitch McConnell's claims, has traditionally been used to kill civil rights legislation, and in this case, as we are going through this week, probably to kill a protection of voting rights, which is under attack. Well, it took us thirty seconds to get from baseball to the filibuster, so we'll get some yeah, credit no, for that. Yeah, no, you guys are amazing. Well, I didn't know I was doing. I, I'm vamping <laughs> here, uh, so. No, no, there, there's there's a parallel. so the other the other part in terms of the baseball thing, and this does apply to the nation as well, is that the style of play or the method of play has changed such that there is less action in baseball. So even though the games are getting longer, less and less is happening because more and more plays are disposed of at the plate. So if you have a four pitch at bat and not a lot of contact or a lot of foul balls and so forth, and then finally the batter strikes out, you're not seeing, even with these glorious widescreen wide TVs that we have right now, which do give you, you know, great views of the field, there's nothing to see. You know, Andrelton Simmons doesn't get to make that many great plays at shortstop. Byron Buxton, I'm stuck on the Twins for some reason, doesn't get to run down that many balls in the outfield because it's just the pitcher and the catcher and the batter going whoosh or taking a walk. Similarly, we cannot progress as a country because we have this anti-democratic rule in the Senate that allows 
just a, a small handful of people. And that rule, too, has been revised to make it easier for these people to gum up the Senate, because it used to be that you needed to actually stand there and hold the floor for all for all the hours that, that you you uh, are trying to stop legislation. There is not the greatest guy, but there's kind of a funny thing to read, which is is Huey Long in the 30s when he was a senator from Louisiana read his family's recipe. So the Senate, quote, we don't want the Senate to have a filibuster. We should talk about whether Satan Contagious should have a filibuster. Am I doing that now? Is that what you're saying? Because I was going to talk about pot liquor. His recipe for boiled cabbage, pot liquor. Uh, and then he was assassinated. So, uh, because as, of that? Oh, my God. The, the moral yeah. of the, the story cabbage is... was terrible, Greg. <laughs> the moral of the story is baseball needs to get slimmer and quicker and have more balls in play. And the country needs to get slimmer and so, quicker and be fairer. You know, I, I read these new rules. This is Dr. Lincoln. Can, can, we, can we back up for a second and... Maybe I was just going to like tick off in two words each what each of them are so people know what the hell we're talking Please, about. Please, yes. All right. So just to be clear, there were a bunch of rules that were announced this past week, all things that they're going to try out on the minor leagues who have no choice now because Major League Baseball also controls them. So the first that actually <laughs> is the most accessible, I guess you'd say, and so it's intriguing to me, was they're going to make the bases larger so they're easier to steal. I guess, and so that there's more action on the the, the base pass. Um, they're going to do something about the shift. They are going to uh, do something about pickoffs, and they're going to use um, an automatic ball strike system. Um, so the pitchers, the umpires are going to have less to do, and um, and then some more, uh, you know, time timers of uh, of uh, pitches. Um, and the last thing is that uh, this is less, just in the last two days or so, they have announced that they are going to do this whole scheme where they're going to track the balls to see if they're doctored based on the spin rate, which I'm not clear how that's going to work. So just to clarify, that's that bucket of things. I think I there, think that's everything. What strikes me about this is that, the as Steve has outlined, the real problem in baseball is that one of the real one of the things that's driving a lot of the problems which lead to these rule changes is that it's very difficult to make contact and everything kind of goes from there and one of the reasons it's difficult to make contact is because the issues that these new rule changes uh changes do not address is a large roster like some of the Yankees are going to be carrying and I assume most AL teams 14 pitchers right which means you always have three fresh arms the, it's always been the attitude that arms are disposable, but I think that's even more the case now. And the ease of moving pitchers, players from the major leagues to the minor leagues to the DL. If you limited rosters to 25 and made it harder to do that, you wouldn't have to address some of these problems. I'm struck by, uh, there's a probably apocryphal story about the film Marathon Man, which I don't know if anyone's seen, but at the end of Marathon Man, uh, Dustin Hoffman, who the character, who's the actor, plays his character that's kind of on the run from this, you know, evil Nazi all night. And, and Lawrence Olivier is playing the, the evil Nazi, and they meet at the reservoir in Central Park inside one of the buildings there. And according to the apocryphal story, Hoffman, who is a bit of a method actor, shows up for the shoot all schwitzy and like like he's been running and everything. And and Olivier, who pulls up in a you know chauffeured car and is looking like he you know, says, "What are you doing?" And Hoffman basically says, "I'm getting into character." And and Olivier says, "Why don't you try acting?" <laughs> and and when I hear this, I feel like saying to these, why don't you try playing baseball, right? Yeah. Put 25 people on a team, keep it at 25, make it harder to move pitchers up and down, make it disincentivize having a pitcher throw hard till he can't and then getting to the next pitcher. And if you address those macro questions, 
And, and, and those issues of roster movement have always been more, people aren't as, they don't really affect the game directly quite as much as these, which ultimately aren't going to solve any problems. They're just going to make it a little bit faster to get to the three true outcomes. There's a thing here that in all these rules, it's about trying to spur action. You know, the pit, the pickoff thing is is big as far as, you know, we, we want guys to steal bases and stuff. I really don't think they've gone back far enough to look at what really changed baseball over the last decade or so, maybe a little more than a decade. The guys who throw hard, obviously, there are lots of reasons guys throw harder now training and, and you know, technique and everything else. But there's there was it was selected for. I mean, baseball in some ways has selected for guys who throw hard in the way that guys currently throw hard. And a big way that they selected for it is the strike zone. And I think all of us on this podcast are old enough to, you know, have been active baseball watchers in the nineties and the, the strike zone then, and made most famous by, you know, Tom Glavin and Greg Maddox, who people would always get mad at for getting outside and inside strikes was wide. It was a lot wider than it is now. And it wasn't as, as tall. It wasn't as vertical, both on the bottom end and the top end. And what changed that was, you know, at then at that time it was called Quest Tech. I forget how many names it's gone through, which is the the sort of umpire evaluation system to determine whether or not they're calling balls and strikes. And oh, what yeah. whatever happened to that? <laughs> well, it's, it's it's still there, and it's changed okay. names. It's changed names several times, and it's also what's evolving basically into the robot ump, into the right. automatic balls and strikes thing. Right? They're getting better and better with it. But what that did was is it it discouraged the inside and the outside strikes and it encouraged top and bottom of the zone. If you look at the rule book strike zone and where a low strike is, it's almost unhittable by a lot of batters at a certain velocity. If you could throw in the mid nineties or higher down, you know, below Aaron judges knees, you're going to do pretty well. And so there was this big selection for guys who throw super, super hard, but can't paint corners, but can hit those bottoms and those tops. And and that has gone a long way towards increasing walks, because if you're trying to be fine there, it's going up and it's going down. It's gone a, and you're not getting sort of like, oh, he's established that part of the zone. So we'll call that zone, uh, call that a strike. And, and you're getting unhittable pitches. So you're getting a lot of home runs. You're getting a lot of walks. And if you miss, you're going to hit, you're going to miss in the middle of the uh, zone. So you're going to, you're going to give up a lot of home runs and you've lost the sort of control pitcher of lower velocity. There is no future in baseball or no present in baseball anyway, for guys who throw like Tom Glavin used to, or Jamie Moyer used to. And there's a lot of future for guys who throw 99 miles per hour, blow out their arms the next year and are completely fungible. And I think that's gone a long way. There has been almost no talk whatsoever about redefining the strike zone, and that boggles my mind. They could just move the walls out. The, the other thing, um, and I remember this conversation I had with uh, Starvin Marvin Freeman, who uh, pitched with the Rockies and uh, Braves and a number of other major league teams. This was uh, in Chicago. He, he's been retired a number of years. But one of his friends is a minor league pitching instructor for the Minnesota Twins. And they had this phone conversation where the Twins were – no longer teaching sinkers to their uh, minor league pitchers. They're trying to teach them, you know, the four seam fastball, the riser, like, and they're pitching to power, but not movement in the way that, you know, how do you counteract launch angle? One might think logically sinker ball dip can't get under it. Not coaching that overpower them up in the zone, overpower them. And so 
it's even in the training that the minor leaguers are being given now how to approach this new game and it doesn't you know it doesn't save time the way i understand it the sinker is is not worth using right now there are some pitchers who still do use it and and they they do buck the trend but if you think about it batters are trying to uppercut and so their swing is going from kind of low to high this is very simplified but and the the pitch goes from high to low so they actually meet in the middle and go flying over the fence instead of getting the old Tommy John result which is a 6-3 put out so how much of this is actually about how they're training young baseball players with all the science and the analytics what some people think is overload i mean is it as much about the culture that's been created that it's hard going to be hard to walk back as it is from any technical fix? I I think to a great extent, one of the things that's changed, and this is an odd thing to say, is college baseball, particularly, you know, the higher levels of of baseball. Because college coaches, just because they have, you know, the recruiting and the scouting, they look at the easy, you know, spin rate, speed, uh, you know, uh, time from the catcher to second base if you're a second baseman, you know, all kinds of exit velocity type statistics, if you're type indicators, if you're a batter. And and those are the easiest, those are, that's the drunken man search, right? You, you're you on your way, for those of you who don't, who aren't social scientists, the drunken man search is you're drunk, you're coming home from a, a night of partying and you drop your keys in front of your house. Where do you look? You look under the lamppost because the light's the best there. And that's kind of what's what's driving this here, right? So, and, but once you get that, it becomes a very difficult cycle, right? So, so for example, there's a lot of, you know, why don't players bunt into the shift? Well, the reason players don't bunt into the shift, you know, against the shift, I should say, is that it's a lot more difficult to bunt a 98-mile-per-hour fastball than a 90-mile-per-hour fastball of, of a generation or two of them. So, so this feeds on each other. So, but what, what baseball's doing is it's tinkering around the edges to address some of the symptoms of a style of play that is not as appealing to as many people rather than addressing some of the causes. And I don't know whether that's a financial decision out of the West, just they just don't quite see it the same way I do, or whether there are other kind of structural problems that makes that difficult. You know, baseball is a great game if one, if two or three pitchers on each team are throwing 99 miles an hour and and it's a three, it's a, you know, a three true turnout game, but it's a boring game if 12 pitchers on a roster are doing that. It's a great game if you have one Gorman Thomas or Dave Kingman. I just have to laugh when I say Gorman Thomas, but it's not a great game if you have eight in the lineup. But I mean, I imagine that they didn't go over the root causes of the problem because it'd be really damn hard. Well, I think they probably did. One thing that happened this offseason was uh, Theo Epstein, who stepped down as the uh, the Cubs president, uh, basically became a, I don't know if he was formally hired, but he's a consultant. His job was to work with Major League Baseball. His fingerprints are, are on these new rules of how can we change pace of play based on uh, factor? And the idea was Theo Epstein says, I took, I take responsibility. My generation of baseball uh, executives and scouting and baseball operations people take responsibility for developing a game that got us to this point that is not very good. So I'm going to also take part in the solutions. He gave an interview in which that's basically what he said. Let's find a way to fix this or to make it better. And I would guess that when you're Rob Manfred and his competition committee and Theo Epstein sitting in a room and someone says something like, hey, let's fix root cause A, that might do something. 
Theo Epstein, who has spent his entire career and a bunch of other people who invested in developing entire organizations, probably say, hey, hey, you're about to undo 25 years of work here and you're going to throw every baseball team out of whack if all of a sudden everything they've been selecting for and everything they've been optimizing for is gone. So I think then they go, okay, well, we'll just try to tinker on the end of it. And, and I think that's what the base running is. Who do you think yes. was at that table that would have come up with transformational changes that could have resonated? Gorman Thomas was, Steve Dalkowski, <laughs> Rob Deere. Oh, probably nobody. And Ryan Duran. <laughs> I mean, I don't know who's on the co- – the competition committee could probably Google who it is. There, there are various executives and former players and stuff like that who are on there. I I think your, your question is what – no one was actually coming up with this kind of stuff, and that's probably right. I don't think anybody there um, had it in mind. It's fascinating that they tinker around the stolen base in an era where yeah, but that's people why. tried the least amount of stolen bases. So. Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, I think they're trying to encourage it. And I think that the step-off rule, for example, I think is going to have a massive change. I mean, it's down in the lower minor leagues is where it's being tested. So it's not necessarily going to be applicable what will happen in the majors. But you know, the idea is the pitcher gets to step off the rubber once or twice, and then he can't throw over or step right. off again, which basically gives the base runner almost a free shot to take the longest lead he can possibly take. There's going to be a lot more stolen bases. You know, the thing is, uh, stolen bases aren't a thing unless you have guys on first. Mm-hmm. And if you're not hitting singles, you're having way fewer guys on first. And unless you develop and, and value the ability to steal a base once you make your way to first base. It, it, the, the ability will be easier if you make the rules easier. Yeah. It's not and just base. that, though, because stolen bases, just as happened when Babe Ruth came into the league and the style of play changed, they got devalued because the risk-reward proposition isn't there. There is absolutely no reason to gamble a base runner for 90 feet if he's going to to trot happily, merrily around the bases when the next batter comes up. And so you stay on first. The one aspect that of the, of the larger bases that I do like is that it has the potential to change what is the the dumbest consequence of instant replay that yeah. has happened to date, which is that a guy runs into second base or slides into second base, moving however fast a human can can run at at cheetah speed, and he can't stick to the base like Spider Man because the 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 momentum doesn't work that way. Physics don't work that way. So he pops off the base for a microsecond, which is only visible, not visible to the human eye. It's only visible on replay. And then they call him out. And I'm sorry, but if that had been the case for Ricky Henderson or Lou Brock or any Ty Cobb, any other great Corey base dealer, Yeah, they wouldn't have done what they did because it's not, it's literally not feasible. It, it is you know, as as James Doohan used to say on Star Trek, you can't break the laws of physics, Captain, and that's what they're trying to do. James Doohan was in the Navy at the invasion of Normandy. <laughs> Did you know that? No, but so was Yogi Berra. I wonder if they so ran Yogi into Berra, each of course, other. Yeah. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See t Life gets more magical when you dream. 
who dream of a Disney cruise filled with magic and wonder. <laughs> Hiya, pal! Sail from Florida to Disney's private island paradise and get ready for a dream come true with Disney Cruise Line. So I, just to take the broad look for a second, I, I found myself, especially in light of the conversations that we had last year, feeling much more open to these changes and saying, what the hell, why not try it than I have before? Because we we talked a lot last year about, you know what, we need to not think of baseball as this intractable, never moving forward, never moving anywhere thing. And so, uh, you know, I mean, can these do damage? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I used you- to really get annoyed by the whole thing about no. trying to prevent the shift. Because I, I said, you know, look, Baseball players are great at adjusting, make them adjust their swings. Now, Lincoln says that they don't bunt because it's too hard to, what I heard, you know, from broadcasters, but is that, you know, they don't, they don't try to, they don't learn to. The game hasn't been the same since they said you could no longer throw the ball at the runner to get them out, right? I mean, it's been downhill since Lincoln's right. The broadcasters are wrong on that, on that point. (laughs) (laughs) To, To your point, though. It's really easy for baseball fans. It's almost the default for baseball fans. And and baseball fans are conditioned to have this be the default by those broadcasters and by writers and everything else to think that if you fiddle around with the rules, you're somehow, you know, changing the laws of physics or changing the, the rules of the universe or something like that. But no, baseball was not created by the Big Bang, right? This is not an immutable element of the universe, whatever rules we have here. I don't think we should get too hung up on it. I, I think it's going to be fine. None of these, I, I think the step-off rule might be a little weird if it if it comes to the major leagues i think that might change things a little bit otherwise i i'm not too hung up on it and i'm i used to be a traditionalist i sort of got over that and uh i'm all for fiddling around uh and i'm all for by the way i not that i ever praise major league baseball for anything but you know what if you're going to screw up the minor leagues completely the way they've screwed them up at least get something out of it and what they're getting out of it is a is a laboratory and i would rather them test these rules down in low a or, or double a or whatever than have them just appear in the majors and in a way that might be disruptive and we'll find out after a year or two how some of this stuff is doing i think craig and tova were both both kind of making uh very good points here which is one that rules do affect outcomes but that things that we think of as having been there forever i mean i made that joke about you know it was called soaking the base runners but the game, there's always been tinkering, and, and, and I'm certainly old enough to remember the debates around, I'm the oldest person, I think, on this podcast, around the designated hitter rule. But this does go back to something that Stephen was touching on, right? The thing to know about the filibuster, if you know only a few things about it, other than what Steve said, is that it's a Senate rule. It is not a law. It is not in the Constitution. And the founders debated it and decided they didn't want it, right? Now, they didn't debate the filibuster because they didn't know what the word was because it didn't exist. But they debated further what were then what we now call super majorities and that kind of thing to make it harder to pass legislation in the Senate. And what they decided was, no, we don't want to do that because we already have this bicameral system. And we already have the presidential veto power. It's going to be hard enough to pass legislation. Well, this, this the filibuster reform is going to be a hell of a lot more impactful than any of this tinkering of the edges in baseball. I will say that. Right. I mean, it'll be up there with the DH At role. least. At the very least. At least. Tova, can we talk about what's at stake in case people haven't wholly followed what has happened in the aftermath of Joe Biden being elected? Yeah, I mean, basically, in very brief, the Republicans and Mitch McConnell more in particular are going to block every kind of really um, moving us forward and on all kinds of social justice issues, on 
really every issue <laughs> of importance to me, at least, or, or most of them, including voting rights, which is what I work on and which is, again, under siege in the form of HR1 and S1. Um, other things like we've just had, you know, experienced another god-awful week with gun violence, anything having to do with guns, and they've already that would during, be pro-labor, you know, so. And not, not to cut you off, but in the, in the Obama administration, they did veto gun legislation. Back when, when the Democrats had a majority, they vetoed gun reform. This is, those people are dead because of the veto. I mean, not to be depressed about it. Well, I mean, and, and Mitch McConnell, you know, in his usual, very eloquent and <laughs> style, has basically said, if you try to reform the filibuster, we're going to just burn it down. We are going to grind this thing to a halt. So there's a there's a champion of democracy, and to which the answer is so what? He's full of it. Yeah, they had they had majority they had majorities. They had the president, they had both houses and the Supreme Court, and they didn't pass any of that crap. He says they're gonna they were gonna pass if if the filibuster's gone because the Republicans love being able to tell their donors, you know what, we would have passed all this stuff that you love, but we can't because of this filibuster. Sorry, but but also also the Republicans as a conservative party are vested in the status quo. So the filibuster, which makes it hard to do anything, just just on that level, hurts progressive forces more because they're trying to change things and improve things. The Republican parties don't want to change gun laws, right? They don't want to change laws around policing. They don't want to change all these things. So so even even with that, but but the key here is call their bluff. Call their bluff. The the other aspect to the filibuster is that it pushes the Democratic Party to water down their own legislation hoping that they will please the Republicans into voting for it. And typically, as we have already seen, they won't vote for it anyway. Can I just, I want to step in there for a second, because you're 100% right, Adrian. I mean, so being part of some of the conversations around the the very large HR1 bill around voting rights is, well, but if you gave up this and gave up that and just left a, this part in and this part in, then we could get Republican support and we wouldn't have to go through all this. And it's just like, just like Obama. Didn't we go th- through this enough during the Obama years, where they would start out from a position of negotiating against themselves and from a position of weakness? So, I mean, I understand what these people are saying because this stuff is really important to get past, but that doesn't seem to me to be the answer. Yeah, the other part about that that I wanted uh, to fi- finalize the point there was it's also really taking away the art of the compromise that used to be part of politics. If if you're, the premise is we're going to filibuster and you're going to water it down to something that you, you think we're going to vote for, but we're never going to vote for it in a way. The, you know, the, the act of compromise is about vote swapping and trying to get some level of actual bipartisan participation in drafting of legislation and passage of it. That's not really happening. Well, I mean, that, that you know, that should be the process. I mean, some of the things that people are complaining about, not to get too into the weeds, but should be hammered out during committee uh, markup and all of that when, you know, you would hope that a few Republicans would want to participate. But and, and, and also, not not to stay in the weeds too much, but in a huge country with only two parties that are coalition parties, right? The negotiation also happens within the majority party, right? You've got to get it. You've got to get something that kind of mansion cinema and Diane Feinstein will support. And that already requires negotiation, just like on the Republican side, except it's, it's a more diverse caucus on the democratic side, but that compromise exists here. I would just add also that we are the movement on the filibuster in the last six months is extraordinary. Joe Biden ran for president most of the time saying, I won't consider this. 
Feinstein was a no. Feinstein becomes a yes if if, if um, Biden becomes a yes. But Cinema and Mansion, like people, there there's movement here, yeah. which is and, Mansion and, in particular. And there's tremendous room for compromise on the filibuster because things like the talking filibuster, things like car bets, we're going to only filibuster these kind of bills. So there are ways to get around this. Yeah, actually, I've been wondering about that. I don't know what the baseball rule analogy is, though. I'm sure Steve is going to come up with it about we're going to have we're not going to allow the, ball, the filibuster for these certain categories of things. And I don't I can't imagine like having a DH in one rule, but not the other one league, but not the other. Oh, there you go. But I, I can't imagine they're agreeing to any of the provisions that are in at least the voting rights. Bill. It's a it's a Senate rule. You can you that's the that, that's the point. You change it with 50 Democratic votes. Kamala breaks the tie. The vice president breaks the tie. And it's, it's existential for them. It's existential for both sides, right? I right. mean, the the filibuster is is kind of the red herring here because the the real issue is that the Republicans are a minoritarian party. They don't have a, an agenda that can appeal to at least on a national level to enough voters to actually run things. And that is to to follow what Craig said. It is one of the reasons that it's actually worth calling McConnell's bluff. Oh, if you get rid of the filibuster, we'll actually pass all our legislation. We'll outlaw abortion. We'll outlaw all non-whites. Well, well, try it. Just you know, you'll you'll we'll actually have a test then of what this society is really about because they know that those policies are not do not have mass support. So he's. I think it's an empty threat because they're not going to be able to do it if they're called upon to do it. But the structural issue for the Dem- or I'm sorry, the existential issue for the Democrats is that if the Republicans perceive that they lost this election on non-white votes, then they're going to do everything they can to restrict voting access because the existi- existential issue for them is to kind of roll in a faux Jim Crow system and try to prevent as many as many people of of color showing up as possible in these purple states. And the the one that amazes me, and this is at the state level in Georgia, is the whole idea that you cannot bring a Coke to someone standing online to vote. If you see a a 75 year old person online waiting to vote online, by the way, because the state authorities have put one voting machine in in a in this one precinct that serves 20 square miles so they've intentionally inflicted a line on them and then they say that you have to be like Lawrence of Arabia crossing the desert on a camel to to actually register your vote you can what find somebody throw them in jail for bringing them a sandwich and a coke so that that stay online is i mean what i can't even imagine what purpose you what what pretext you would have for a law like that, that you they want people to leave the line. Well, no, I know that that's the point. I just can't, can't think of a, even a legitimate government, a legit, any excuse you can make for that law to be legitimate. Right. So the problem is the Democrats need to pass voter protection laws and the Republicans need to be anti-democratic. And but, that that's where we, we have a system where compromise is impossible because they're 180 degrees apart from each other. You know, and I, I gotta say, I mean, maybe this is for a different podcast, <laughs> but I have been working on this issue for 20 years and I, I'm, everyone seems to always treat this every time as something new. Now, and everyone says this is the worst it's ever been. They do this every two to four years. I mean, literally just go back. I mean, you can look at my work. <laughs> I mean, and so this is nothing new. This is the <laughs> modus operandi for the last, at least 
50, 60 years in the modern era where they have tried to do the same exact kinds of things. And it got really bad after 2010 when they, uh, the Republicans took over a tremendous number of state legislatures and governorships, and they still dominate at the state level and they're able to do this stuff. And then you have a, a court system packed with Republican, sorry, there are Republican and Democratic judges um, and a Supreme Court that's enormously hostile to voting rights. So that's it. I'll get off my, uh, get, get away from the lectern, but. You know, I mean, it is also worth noting that, you know, for the Republican Party, if they can, I'm going to get the numbers slightly wrong, but only slightly wrong. They've never, they've not represented a majority of the American people in the Senate. In other words, the states that they represent in a very long time. And so they can represent, they can win 51 seats, say, by representing somewhere in the 40s, probably the low to mid 40s percentage of the American people. But if the threshold, and that's a minority party, that's a minority party that's able to govern. They can also win the Electoral College without getting a majority of American people. And, and they can sneak away into the House with some gerrymandering. But the problem is that if you, if with the, what the filibuster says, it says with 41 Senate seats, you can stop everything. And 41 Senate seats, just do the Montana, Wyoming, the Dakotas, you know, go down the list, is representing a very, a, a very small and, and, and a segment of the American people. And, and you just, that is, that is a country that is, that is not ungovernable. It's just not governed at that point. For all the people who actually want to, uh, where's the baseball angle here for the people who don't care? <laughs> I, I'll give you a, I'll give you a baseball angle. It's that the, the broad idea of not doing what most people want is, is sort of central to Rob Manfred era major league baseball um i i think of things like the blackout rules i mean that has a more of a justification for it than you know the coke online at, at the voting place right and at least there's someone who wants the blackout rules for for local broadcast those are you know cable companies and and, and regional sports networks but you know there are huge overwhelming number of baseball fans that would love to be able to watch their local team online but they can't major league baseball just has no interest in doing that um there's a lot of things like that the stakes are nowhere near as high obviously but uh, it's it's certainly the the idea of of there are interests that are not the fans in baseball that are being served and it's almost always the business interest of the owners and sponsors and other stakeholders um but they're not being served so anti-democratic in baseball too well and i mean yeah but also the analogy is that typically at least and i'm not sure this holds in this current circumstance as much but is that been that members of Congress are totally beholden to wealthy interests as well and business interests as well. That's still, I think, somewhat true. But, you know, the NRA is not what it was. Um, there are all sorts of things like that. There's, you know, you've got all the small donor contributions that have taken off now. So it's not as much of a thing. It's not actually clear to me how much that's still the case. It's the nationalization of politics, I think, and the fact that right now the the thing that's going to help you win a Republican primary is is being looked on kindly by the Fox Newses of the world, and and those sorts of people are, are getting Donald Trump's endorsement or a Trump kid endorsement or something, and so you're playing to a, a crowd that is not voters and and maybe even is less donors now. When a local race, and we have local races here in Ohio, we're talking like a county seat that has basically become nationalized as far as the rhetoric and the politics and things. And it's, it's ridiculous. Voters kind of suck it up. They like it. Right. I mean, we've got a rural County right to our, uh, to my East here where I live and uh, the County commissioner race was run on stuff like, you know, lock Hillary Clinton up a couple of years ago. 
it, that that was what the ads were. That's what people were talking about. And I don't know how you fix that. But when that happens, you are not dealing with anything approaching a, a natural constituency. Well, and this also speaks to what's been also discussed a lot as um, being a Republican or a Democrat, being a huge part of your identity and being on the left, mm. left or being on the right goes far farther than just a bunch of policy Sports. proposals. Yeah. So, you know, it's your, you're either take a knee or don't take a knee, right? Or, <laughs> you know, uh, they... How, how, do you, how do you do a compromise in committee when you got elected by convincing your voters that the other side is well, safe? I mean, right? How, how do you do that? You can't, right? When, when, you've, when, when your voters have decided that the most important part of their identity is I'm a Republican, how do you go to them and say, well, I just cut a deal with the Democrat? When I was at SB Nation, one of the the editors who, were, who was running the thing, kind of the motto for the whole business was sports is tribal. And I hated it. I hated it because it it is the same thing that, you know, Adrian was talking about, whether compromise is possible for before it's not, because at that you have in an ideological litmus test, as, as Craig was just saying, and it was the same thing in sports. And I have gone to ball games and watched people at Yankee Stadium kick the crap out of the one idiot who came in wearing a Mets cap. And you know, there, there. We don't have to be soccer hooligans. Like, I don't. I, I honestly, I'm not. I, I'm not a, a rah rah guy, kind of in overall in my persona. And I don't like Groucho Marx. Really want to be part of any club that would have me as a member. But I don't get the soccer hooliganism idea. I don't get the Mets uh, beat up the the Mets guy idea. And that has extended to politics. So. Yes, in, in an ideal world, we compromise and find some middle ground that we can go forward on. But functionally, we can't and we don't because it has become tribal. Yeah, you remind me, and this kind of circles back to that fandom uh, podcast we had. But as a baseball fan, two of the greatest moments I've had was watching a good friend of mine from graduate school who grew up in Mattapan, Massachusetts, lived uh, you know, into adulthood without ever seeing his Boston Red Sox winning a World Series. I sat and saw them win it, their first World Series, and he calls his, his father, Haitian-American father, calls him up, and I watched them not talk to each other on the phone, literally just speechless, crying. And like to me, that was such a powerful baseball fandom moment to see someone else have that moment. And like that's, I think that's about as anti-tribal as you can be. But some people do strive for a tribal kind of fandom, and there's you know merch to go with that, and there's a mindset to go with that. And you know, I love baseball because it can be something that is shared not just with the people who wear the same cap as you do, but across that and kind of like all enjoy a great play. You know, that is like what I mean, I if, love you, about if you can't take the violence out of it, I mean, this, this goes back to a tension that has existed between Steve and me for <laughs> the entire time we've all been together <laughs> because I, I'm a huge Yankee fan. I hate the Red Sox, all that good stuff. And I always think back, I don't think I've brought this up before, but so I live in DC. So we would often frequent Orioles games in Baltimore and root for the Yankees like crazy because Baltimore is always terrible at this point. And, um, you know, we would see other Yankee fans um, sprinkled throughout the, the stadium. Actually, this happened to me at Fenway, too. 
and we were best friends, man. When when the Yankees scored or whatever, we were high five, and we and I don't know if these people were mass murderers, you know, but we were we were friends for that moment. But I, I see this tribal component of it, and and it goes to politics too. But if you remember the uh, the wars in uh, the former Yugoslavia in the in the early nineteen nineties. And the coverage of that in the Western media was always these are ancient hatreds about which we uh, we can't do anything. And that simply was not true. This was hatred cultivated largely by Tuzman and Milosevic for short-term political gain. They had to cultivate that. They had to push it. They had to push it until these atrocities were committed. Now, I'm not comparing this to, you know, I don't know, ripping a Mets hat, a Mets hat off someone's head or something, a Red Sox hat off someone's head. But, but I am making the point that even that, like someone growing up in San Francisco, I knew the Dodgers were our rivals, but you know, I had to be taught to like hate somebody with a Dodgers hat on, right? I don't really feel that anymore, but that was taught to me. And similarly here, when you say, how can you run by saying lock her up and then go back and, and negotiate something, you know, in a committee or a subcommittee, that's absolutely, you know, the challenge. But there are forces on both sides that want that, that make that happen. The American people. There's an awful lot of data that says, you know, there are, and this is part of the problem with the filibuster, right? There are majority opinions on gun regulation, for example, right? right? Very clearly, right? There are majority opinions on voting rights, for example, but these structures don't let that happen. And, and the politicians gain from, from cultivating that tribalism, not least because for most politicians, the primary is more important than the general election. And that has not always been true in America, but it is true now and it has been for a while and it makes things worse. Tova, there there was a, a proud boy from California, macrobiotic. He's a surfer, very laid back dude, and a proud boy from Michigan who eats red meat on every occasion, kind of uptight in his private life. And they both met at a statue of Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville, Virginia, and embraced each other as like-minded spirits. And for that day, they were best pals. That's that's my my darker. Yeah, but were they were they Yankee fans? The Red Sox, Red Sox fans. <laughs> Yankee fans. Yankees are for Jews. <laughs> no, I think. Look, rooting is uh, Tova. I don't. I don't mean. I. I. I'm. I'm wounded that this is a tension between us because obviously I, I have great respect for you, and I think I wouldn't have a, a career, Craig. Too, we wouldn't if people didn't have these affiliations because you know we when you when you this becomes your job. Right. It's 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 different. You lose that. And as I've remarked many, many times, I grew up a Yankees fan, too. And then I got to work with and around the Yankees and I saw how the sausage was made. And I saw that at least at that time, a lot of the people involved were just right bastards and lost that fandom very which is true of all Very, 30 Yeah, teams. of course. Well, I ask people sometimes like, it, you know, you compare experiences and then you hear like, at least under the Wilpons, yeah, the Mets were actually worse than that. And then, but no, you know, working for the Dodgers or the Giants is actually a lot more fun. Like it, it depends on the year and the day and who you're asking. But you, you lose that that fan thing because it's your job. It's not your. And like I said, my my personality might just be kind of bent, bent that way anyway. So no, it's not inherently a bad thing. Just like, although I I would be very tempted to say that being politically conservative is a bad thing, at least to the extent that people use it as a justification for racism. But to to look at it in sort of its pure form that doesn't really exist as a philosophy, no, it's not inherently bad. It's the demonization of other people.
Dunkin' is putting a whole new spin on pumpkin at Dunkin' with our new pumpkin cream cold brew. Smooth, bold, cold brew topped with velvety pumpkin cream cold foam made with cinnamon and nutmeg spices. And there's more pumpkin for you to love, like the delicious fall classic, our pumpkin spice signature latte. Rich espresso topped with whipped cream, caramel drizzle, and cinnamon sugar. That's how we pumpkin at Dunkin'. Sip into the fall season with the $3 medium pumpkin cream cold brew or pumpkin spice signature latte. America runs on Dunkin'. Participation may vary. Limited time offer. Exclusion apply. Valid on pumpkin spice signature latte only in all cold foam cold brew. You did it. You woke up today. You even got out of bed. You deserve a reward. We can't all be morning people, but we can all get McDonald's for breakfast. Right now, mix and match a chicken McGriddles or a McChicken biscuit for just three bucks. Order ahead on the Mickey D's app. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with combo meal. Single item at regular price. Mobile order and pay at participating McDonald's. For much of American history, political party functioned differently. Both Republican and Democratic Party had an enormous ideological range, right? I believe it was VOK who said, if you studied the FDR coalition in a seminar, you would conclude that it was impossible, right? So that so that your tribal allegiance <laughs> to the Republican Party could have could have put you could have been Jake Javits, you could have been Barry Goldwater, you could have been somewhere in between. Your tribal allegiance to the Democratic Party, you know, in the sixties, you could have been, uh, you know, you could have been Phil Burton, or you could have been James Stennis or, or John Stennis or anywhere in between. So, as the as the parties have have become more ideologically sorted, not partisanship is greater, but they're more ideologically consistent. Which, by the way. In the mid-century, there was a whole in the literature. There was a lot of discussion about the problem with American politics is that we don't have ideological political parties. But as that has happened, that tribalism has become much more, much rough around the edges and much easier yeah, to. Yeah, remember mobile. the days when uh, the political science literature would say the the real problem is that the two parties are too alike. That's I mean until pretty recently, mm-hmm. if you can believe. Yeah, and it's kind of the opposite of what's happened in baseball, where the American and National League are really becoming more alike as opposed to used to be really two different leagues, different sets of rules. They talk about different strike zone players and move back and forth as much. And now they're becoming, we need a one. third league. I'm just trying to, <laughs> but, you know, we, we, we need the USPL. Is that what no. you're saying, Craig? Or the continental baseball league. league. <laughs> I, I, yeah. We, hey, look, I'm not throwing away my rooting. If I like a third league, it's like my choice, man. <laughs> Even if you're wasting your vote, <laughs> it, it's not wasted. I, you guys are all the same, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you, you can be a, any of the nine players. How about that? You know, God, I would love to just like assume the identity of a hardcore, like beyond Bernie baseball fan, right? Of like, I hate, I hate all you guys. And I, I say this as a guy who likes Bernie Sanders, actually. But it, that that online persona but, of, of those people that, um, is yeah. a lot of fun to just sort of do as a bit for an entire season as a sports fan. I hate every single team. You know, but but your your comment about the divisions among baseball fans. I mean, it is, it is striking that I can't imagine following baseball now uh, and not knowing the political opinions of the writers, podcasters, and others to whom I listen. I can't imagine that. Now, I know on this show, uh, this podcast, we make an effort to really go down the <laughs> middle and not let people know where we stand on issues. But I would, I would find that uh, a, a difficult. But, but even so, what strikes me is that a good – if you want to know uh, – a baseball fan's ideology politically, a good question to ask is not, you know, who'd you vote for, but 
who do you think is more deserving of being the Hall of Fame, Jack Morris or Burt Blylock? That's what I ask everybody. That's how <laughs> and, I feel now. No, I'm, but 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 I'm not saying one should go through life asking everyone that question. But if so, the the uh, but but that is a way that that the the kind of political tribalism permeates more. I spent more the problem. entire mid two thousands, like the whole Bush administration, asking people what they felt about Burt Blylock and and Jack Morris. I mean, that was. That was the extent of my activism. And if you went back and did the research, you would find that they cleave people ideologically. Well, I was as there. Well. I was in the middle. Those were, those were arguments that I lived and died for, unfortunately, in a giant waste of my time. But uh, yeah, I remember <laughs> it was it was very similar, actually. Tri- that tribalism is right. And when some, yeah, but it's but it's also it's 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 correlated. With the reason that that the Burt so Bonham and Jack Morris this. thing is masturbatory, as as Craig has latterly discovered, is that. Did that word offend you, Tova? It is, that, though. It was a little strange. It, it, it is one of my favorite adjectives uh, or possibly adverbs. Anyway, <laughs> is that nothing changes, right? It's if Burt Blylevin, Burt Blylevin is in the Hall of Fame, nothing about Burt Blylevin changes. The essential nature of Burt Blylevin changes uh, or doesn't change. He is what he is. The back of the baseball card is not altered in any way except in some people's perception. And he still has more wins than any he, other farm-born pitcher, Yes, right? see, Burt Blylevin was born tilting at windmills, quite literally, and that that's one of the great things about him, in addition to his incredible curveball, but and the hot foots in the dugout. We can't leave that out. But again, the other stuff that we we make as subjects of, of sort of the, these these bilateral uh, arguments or, or 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 you know are are consequential. So when we're talking about the question of the of the filibuster, then it really does change. If 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 we don't have voting rights, if we don't have gun reform, people live and people die. People get economic benefits or, or they're left out. And so that's why, even though it's as frustrating and it feels as fungible as arguing about Burt Blylevin and Jack Morris, we can't quit exactly. I, I will. I think there's another kind of interesting angle of this, which is the executive and the powers of the executive. And you have in baseball, which is a, a pretty powerful executive to, who can impose the rules on the leagues and on the players. I think Biden is doing the best he can in that department, but it is a, a different balance of, uh, <laughs> I don't know who the third branch of baseball is. Um, but uh, Well, the third branch of baseball, fans, I mean, it's, I it know. is, yeah, I mean, that's, that's the, that's the stakeholder that has sold, that's, that's voice is just like voters, you know, uh, Elections, which is how we get our Congress, both houses of Congress, are a very blunt instrument to, to paraphrase a, a political scientist, right? It's, 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 you know, where you need it, it's taking a hammer where you really, a sledgehammer where you really need, you know, a sewing needle or something, because it's very hard to tease out what voters' actual preferences are. And it's the same thing here. So Theo Epstein, who has his own agenda, interprets what, you know, Major League Baseball identifies as a problem without, and I know this from talking to people, without sufficient research into what the fans really want, both with regards to play on the field, but also the financial arrangement. I mean, you will never see that. I, I promise you that next year in the next winter meetings, uh, wherever they are, whatever they discuss, when when uh, Rob Manfred holds a press conference, he won't say, I'm pleased to announce that we're, we're demanding a 20% reduction in ticket prices across the country for every major league game, which is what a lot of fans would like, including me. Yeah, I mean, fans are not really, I, I mean, are fans the constituents? I don't I don't know who... who um... They're it's consumers, the I guess. <laughs> but it's 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 analogous. It's analogous, right? They're the they're the the fans are the economic engine of baseball. 
the voters are the political engine of Congress, right? You can't get to, you can't get to Congress without people voting for you. I mean, maybe if you're Republican, you can, but you know, you can't, you can't, <laughs> you know, you, you can't make, you know, Clayton Kershaw doesn't make $30 million a year because it's decree from the heavens. He makes $30 million a year because of a business model that starts with people buying the product. Well, one of the things actually I was wondering about with the rules changes, and maybe this goes to the judicial branch, I don't know, is how this plays into the CBA negotiations and the whole blow up that is going to happen, I suppose, over the DH and expanded playoffs also at the end of the year. Is this going to, is this going to come up in some way that's also going to be a point of contention? It might. I mean, the DH is such a weak tool that Major League Baseball is trying to leverage against the players. You're talking about one more salary per team, which they, the players would like one more full-time salary. Although, although lately or in recent years, a lot of teams throw the DH away. They do, they do not lock a, a Don Baylor or Reggie Jackson into that. They just rotate it through people who might have a groin pull and don't, they don't want out in the field. And uh, they actually get below average production from that position, which is maybe more of a wonky baseball conversation. But what they were trying to do is trade expanded playoffs for that, which the players don't share in to the same extent or very much at all. And so the the owners were, were trading this essentially, you know, $10 million value per team, whatever, to the to the players for something that was worth many hundreds of millions of dollars to them. If that's something they're going to be stuck on, then it's going to be a long, long off season when we actually get into these negotiations. In in terms of, you know, the, the thing that's been interesting about the players is that the players have a divided constituency of their own. And sometimes it is within the union position players against pitchers in terms of revising the rules and stuff like they have to get their own house in order with that and if i i I don't know like i it it would be interesting to figure the economics of this to say like let's say we we adopt something like what lincoln proposed at the top of the program where we say like oh well we'll only have 10 active pitchers per team per day right and then that way you can't be constantly going to the bullpen which is tedious as hell and leads to all of these subpar outcomes that we've been talking about but maybe then the union looks at it and says, well, then that means that those positions are going to be taken by a pinch runner who's getting the league minimum and a pinch hitter who's not getting much more than that. Whereas these middle relievers actually command higher salaries. Therefore it would be deleterious to us to allow that. So like the, the incentives are not are complicated and not all aligned in the, in the right direction. Well, to thread that needle a little bit, you know, as you were mentioning, Steve, that, um, a lot of the, the guys who are DHing is because they're carrying 13, 14 pitchers. And are the middle relievers really pulling exactly. five, six, seven, ten million dollars right a now. year the way that most DH were pulling fifteen, twenty? Not coming off of last year. It's it's and- a nonsense. There's it's a it's a completely data free argument, right? As 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 Steve says, it's not like most of I mean, the Yankees are paying John Carlos Stanton, you know, seventy million dollars a year from now until, you know, the the, the end of time. But for most teams, it's it's a fourth outfielder. I mean, it's just not. It's a guy who's going to be on the roster anyway. It's not like you're expanding the roster to allow for the DH. Half of the pitchers spend most of their season going up between the majors and AAA, so they're not even getting big league salaries for the whole year. And if they are, it's close to the minimum. It's it's. I mean, they're they're. As far as I'm concerned, the union represents its members. They should do rep- represent them, and I'll support them from my orientation. I'll support the labor side no matter what. But basically, no matter what. But but at least think it through more, right? Make make demands more than a better that are more compelling than a universal DH, which helps very few of your members. I guess good for it's Nelson Cruz. For Nelson I guess, Cruz and I mean, Nelson Cruz is great for us. I think he's kind of amazing. But I, 
Yeah, I like Nelson right. Cruz. I mean, that's not no, no. Point, of of course, it's not. I I I also it it's complicated because the things that they want, whether it's not manipulating service time, whether it's trying to get teams to all spend up to a certain level. You know, if you you legislate a, a salary floor, then teams are going to spend down to it in, instead of spending over it. So it's like these are not easy things to solve. And and it's it's much like too also like you know a pitcher who hits someone. And and then he says, "Oh, the ball slipped," and you're you're required to guess motive, right? So when the the Pirates lose 110 games, they can say, "Well, we intended to win 110; it just didn't work out that way." And it you you I mean, look, we're all smarter than that, but it, you if you're looking for a, an evidentiary level that requires some some incentive or, or disincentive to kick in from them doing that, it's hard to do. I, I am a little disappointed that we didn't get to talk, and maybe we will uh, on the next big group uh, podcast about this thing about um, trying to figure out the doctored balls because they're going to try and measure spin rate against what you did before, which you probably also had them doctored (laughs) before. (laughs) So I don't know how you make that comparison. They should bring in Gaylord Perry as an advisor on this, for example. He's still around. I thought about that too, but but, but they've got Trevor Bauer, so it's okay. It was so, uh, to talk about things that are tedious, when Don (laughs) Sutton, who just passed away last year, Every game that Don Sutton pitched late in his career, the camera spent half the game zoomed in on him. We're going to catch him doing it. We're going and they never did. I saw Don Sutton pitch a lot because the Dodgers used to like to throw him against the Giants, even when the Giants maybe just to rub it in when the Giants weren't very good, but certainly when they were competing with each other. And I mean, okay, we all recognized Don Sutton was an extremely good pitcher, but it wasn't an issue in the late seventies that he was throwing like that didn't come up much. He just pitched. He he was know? ejected exactly once for that. And baseball took it back because Doug Harvey messed up the the call. But it, again, it was circumstantial that Doug Harvey was seeing identical scuff marks. And that on. was much. That was like when he was the Brewers or something, if I remember. It was. Yeah, I have to. I have to double check. But but it was the only time no one ever saw it. And if he did, well, you know, more power to him. Gaylord Perry, I think, was kind of more obvious about it, and it was kind of a thing that everyone. It was a yeah, it was cute. I guess is it maybe it wasn't cute for the hitters. Yeah, I feel like we used to think it was kind of just funny. But I guess not. Yeah. I mean, now it's not. Well, again, it's because it's contributing well, to that. I mean, the spin rate thing is kind of fascinating, really. And this yeah. one of the problems and I'm actually going to write about this. I guess it'll be up next week. But the one of the problems with the arguments that are being made is that we can't unknow what we know. And we know that spin rate is really, really important. And baseball is going to continue to select for people who have that. So, yeah, you curtail that a bit by eliminating the the use of of, uh, sticky substances that allow them to have that greater spin rate. But we're still going to be looking for those pitchers regardless. So I think it's going to be a drop in the bucket. Well, the other thing is, what are they actually going to do to people if they suspect them of doctoring the balls because the spin rate is is greater than it was before? They'll make them take sliding practice on bigger bases. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, because it's circumstantial, right? Unless you actually catch somebody with go on their fingers I mean, yeah, not- when Don Sutton was was accused that way, exactly that way by Doug Harvey in that game, what Don Sutton said after the game, and this was a little histrionic, but he said, I cannot speak to the press about this because I'm in consultation with my lawyers. I'm going to sue him and I'm going to sue the National League for interfering with my making a living and for slagging my reputation. But wouldn't you, if someone suddenly, you know, they, they just saw something about a, a variable spin rate and inferred that you were cheating? What? Yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, someone accusing Clemens or Bonds of taking PEDs based on the <laughs> sizes of their heads. 
Um, no, I agree. I, I, that's why I say I'm going to be fascinated to see how they do this and how they figure out when to uh, say that a ball is being likely doctored or not and what they're going to do about it. Um, Tova, before we wrap up here, as yeah. a expert on voting rights, did you agree earlier when I characterized it as an existential thing between the, the two parties for, for each of them where they're driving with these these changes, whether to liberalize voting or constrict it? Perhaps, but I, I, I really hesitate. I, well, I don't just hesitate. I don't like to at all frame it that way because that's not entirely what this is about. It's about, you know, <laughs> civil rights and white supremacy and ongoing attempts to disenfranchise people um, based on race often. I mean, you can say that... It, I don't think the Republicans win. I think they can. I can. They can say that you can't vote on Sunday because that's the Lord's Day. All they want. I, I think that they're not going to win at the end of the day with all these shenanigans. But they will make it more difficult, and that will distort our democracy. And I think that's really where the stakes are. I think we're out of time for now. So I do want to pick that up another time. Um, before we close out, Steve, you're going to tell us what we can expect from the next great, what I'm not supposed to call it, interstitial podcast. <laughs> Intergalactic podcast. Yes. Intergalactic. And we should works. we should note, by the way, that today we have not quite had our full quorum because, or a minion, I should say, because <laughs> Frank Gritty is on assignment. That I, I've always wanted to say that. Frank Gritty is on, as if I were on the local news. Frank Gritty is on assignment tonight. Uh, Frank is in a remote location that has not been wired for an undisclosed remote location. That's right. Exactly. So next week we are going to have a special guest, the Reverend Arnold Townsend, a civil rights legend in the Bay area, a childhood friend of Paul Blair's known as Motormouth in baseball circles. So we will find out if that is actually an actual description or an accurate description of Paul Blair when he's off the field and a lifetime baseball fan. So as always, we will be, mixing it up between memories of the great national game and the other great national game, which is civil rights or imp hopefully improving them as always. Should you find yourself with a moment to spare, please go to the podcatcher of your choice and rate review and subscribe. It helps the show get attention and you can follow us at S I A C pod. I don't know why I have so much trouble saying that every week, but I do. I have a mental block about S-I-A-C pod. And with that, I think we're done. At ease, pilgrims. We'll see you next week. Any last words, Tova? I think at ease, pilgrims, best way to close out ever. <laughs>
Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com. You might have noticed a change in your neighborhood lately. Yep, Sprint stores are now T-Mobile stores. Now that Sprint is T-Mobile, you get more coverage, value, and benefits than ever before. We've invested billions to bring our 5G from big cities to small towns across America. And great coverage is just the start. From high-speed mobile hotspot data to weekly deals and giveaways, our customers get tons of great benefits. Head to your new T-Mobile store to learn more. Qualifying service and capable device required. Coverage not available in some areas. Some uses may require certain plan or features. See T-Mobile.com.